Do you like this show and you want to help support us? Do you want us to stay ad-free? Do you want extra episodes every month? Of course you do. Then head over to patreon.com slash nerdcaveretro and become a Patreon supporter of this very show. and welcome back to another edition of the Nerd Cave Retro Show. My name is Jason Robbins. And my name is Derek Diamond. Man, it's been a busy, busy week. And uh, I'm going to let Derek start off by... uh, Oh, my name is Jason Robbins. That's Derek. And I'm going to let him talk about the big weekend for the Parker Syndrome. So it finally happened. And it's funny because a couple of weeks ago... I realized that I hadn't really set a deadline for myself to get the Parker syndrome done, which is a big problem for me because things are a lot easier for me to get things done if I say I have to have them done by this certain point. You and me both. (laughs) So I had asked the cast and crew, you know, because obviously I wanted to do a big premiere for the movie when it was finished. So I asked them if the 27th of July worked with them and pretty much everyone said yes. So I said, okay. By the twenty, like the twenty fifth, I will have this movie finished. So fast forward a couple of weeks later, and it happened. You know, we we premiered the movie. Um, I, luckily enough, I was able to use. Uh, so at the the baseball stadium that I work, we have this room. It's basically like a lounge area that's exclusive for season ticket holders, where you can go in, get out of the heat, watch TV, get food, drinks, all that kind of stuff, and it. it sits a max of about 60 to 70 people if you really cram people in Mm -hmm. and i was looking at other venues around town and i thought well i could pay for somewhere or i could use this building for free yeah i think i'll definitely use the building for free and there was nothing going on so i was allowed to use it and we had over 60 people show up wow for the premiere which was completely mind-blowing for me at the last minute we had to grab extra seats out of the back (laughs) and put them in the back row that's awesome it it was pretty wild and you know pretty much all the cast and crew showed up uh most of them brought family members i know andrew the the actor who played ethan he brought you know several family members that filled up an entire row which was pretty wild and was the how was the reaction to the movie oh people loved it no, it got a, a great reaction after it was over and you know several people hugged me and the, the thing is is that the, the thing that made it kind of a, a speechless moment for me because I was just for one I was blown away by the amount of people that showed up but I had so many people tell me that they were proud of me dude I'm proud of you I was gonna uh, I've been telling you that since the other day like I am extremely proud of you because I know how hard it is to get a movie made and you did a lot of this you know on your own shoulders i had a lot of help with monsters you know and, and you were lucky with you know the people that you got to help you like steve you know steve wise who we've talked about on this show before who was a huge talent and and such a help to new filmmakers like we are yeah so 
we did a quick Q&A after the movie was over. People asked some good questions. The Q&A probably went, I'd say, about 10 to 15 minutes. And then I made um, what's called a step and repeat, which is basically a, um, for those who don't know what that is, it's the thing you see on TV at movie premieres that have all the different logos on them and everything where you can stand in front of them and take pictures. I had made one of those that we yeah. put out in the hallway right outside the lounge so people could take photos, rolled out a red carpet, you know, had drinks and everything. And it, it was, it was, this might sound really cheesy, but it was honestly a magical night. <laughs> there was just something about it, you know, from even back to when we were shooting the movie, everything about it felt right. And everything about the premiere felt right. Yeah. And it's definitely the highlight of the year for me, but more so than that, from pure life experiences, it's up there as far as one of my favorites. It could not have gone any better. Dude, I really wish I could have been there to experience that with you because I know what it feels like. And like I said, I'm very, very proud of you and what you pulled <laughs> off. And. You know, I I couldn't be there because I was filming in New Orleans for the uh, 48-hour film festival with um, Rachel Searcy and uh, Amelia. I forgot I forgot her last name, but, if, uh, but they they work with uh, a girl in our Goldfish Productions, so they let me come over and be a part of their movie, which I, I don't even know the name of it yet. Everything happened so fast, but um, but yeah, I had to miss it because of that. And if I could have been there, I would have. I really wish I, I didn't have to miss it. Well, you had a valid reason. I mean, you were out filming. No, it's, it's definitely a valid reason. But um, the one other thing that, that I will say about it is it really showed me what that I have a great group of friends that helped me plan the premiere, helped me set everything up. And I, I, I couldn't have asked for, for a better night. Yeah. It was just absolutely fantastic. And uh, as a side note, now I'll close out the Parker Center stuff with this because I definitely want to hear about the 48 hour, you know, film project that you did. Um, I believe so. Th the movie is 99% done with what I showed at the premiere. There was a couple of things that I had to change with the sound edit which I believe I have done. I'm going to go back and watch through the movie one more time because I had to add in a few sound effects somewhere and then fix you know, some of the dialogue because there was this loud hissing noise through some of it. Hmm. Uh, once I fix that, it will be finished, and I'm going to start submitting it to festivals this week. That is awesome. <laughs> so... I know there's a, there's one here locally uh, called the Kite Film Festival that's out in Destin that's in early November that you know I've got my fingers crossed that I can get into that one because I think that if I do I can get I can get a pretty good turnout from the cast and crew. I think that was one of the very first uh, festivals that um, Survey was in, wasn't it? The Kite. It was film the film. first. That's right. That's right. Yep, I remember. Uh, yeah, I remember most of us being there for it, and it was. That was the first film festival I had ever been to, and it was cool just to sit down and, you know, watch everyone's work. Because, you know, Kevin Almodovar, who shot both Servi and the Parker Syndrome, he had a film that he directed 
that was in it. Wow. And then I had a couple of friends of mine who had their films in it as well. So, you know, I had a it, um, long conversation about Kevin the other day when I was in New Orleans amongst some of the filmmaker people over there. And he has definitely made a name for himself. Like everybody I talk to knows him. It is, is impressed by his work and, everybody's just like, why is he not like filming Avengers movies and things like that? I know he's, he's someone who's very, very good at what he does. And one of my favorite accomplishments from the Parker syndrome was after I put out the first casting call, he sent me a private message on Facebook and said, Hey, if you need a director of photography, I'd be more than happy to help you. Yes. And that, that really showed that cause he and I had briefly worked together on survey because i was only there for one day mm-hmm. and i guess i made an impression because he and i had never really interacted before and i'd asked steve about it and he said well you know kevin's a pretty observant guy so i guess he saw that i was willing to help out with other people's projects so he was willing to help me out with mine and he had even said you know one of his favorite things about doing the parker syndrome was he knew that it meant a lot to me because I'd never done a film before. Yeah. And he even said it in the Q and a, he said, getting to help you accomplish your dream was one of my favorite moments. Such a cool dude. Yeah. No, w- without Steve and Kevin, the Parker syndrome would not have happened. The, uh, so, the MVPs. <laughs> yeah. Of the coast. So film community. That's, um, yeah, that was my Saturday. And since then, I've just been kind of living off the high of it because, mm-hmm. like I said, it was it was a pretty amazing evening, and I have so many people to thank for it for helping make it happen. But um, but yeah, as far as I go, you know, like Saturday was um, I had to go film for, like I said, the forty eight hour film festival, and if you don't know what that is. It's uh, it's based out of New Orleans, and basically what it is when you submit that you want to be a part of it. Um, at I think five o'clock Friday evening, they give you a genre and a um, you they give you a genre and a prop that you have to use. And ours was drama, and we had to use a wastebasket. <clears throat> so those were the two things we had to work with. And uh, so uh, Rachel and Amelia spent Friday night writing the script. It was ready, you know, early early Saturday morning. Uh, started production at six in the morning and my scenes didn't even get filmed. I was in the very first scene of the movie, but it wasn't until, uh, you know, like we didn't actually start filming the scene till like seven 30 at night or eight o'clock. So it was around 10 by the time everything was done. And then they had to, um, they were going to get some rest and then they were going to get up early Sunday morning and edit and then submit it by 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon. So you have exactly 48 hours to write, film, and edit a movie for the 48-hour film festival. I've always been curious as to how it works. You know, if they give you, like, you have to do this certain thing. Yes. And then go. So that, that's, that's exactly how it is. That, that's something I'd love to try at some point. Maybe once I get a couple of more shorts under yeah. my belt, I'd love to try that out. I'd love to do it too, but man, you got to prepare yourself because it was breakneck. <laughs> like, oh, I'm sure. Man, you know, Parker syndrome went pretty fast, but imagine trying to make the Parker syndrome in a day. <laughs> uh, 
I think the entire crew would have killed me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a special kind of person though, to want to put yourself through that kind of stress. I, I yeah. want to do it. I'm not sure if I can, but I'd like to at least try one time. It does sound like a really, like once you do it, it sounds like a really liberating experience because yeah. you got to think, you know, I just shot a movie in 48 hours or I made a movie in 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. It's, it is. It's insane. And like, it, I, I, I wouldn't even have thought of this before if it wasn't a thing. Like, w- who thought to do this? Like, let's make a, a festival where all these movies are made literally in 48 hours from conception to finished product. Ugh. <laughs> Maybe like, one day. It makes me tired thinking about it. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm sure I you slept a, great afterwards, though. Oh, yeah. Well, dude, I had such a good time over there. Like, I knew everybody that was a part of it, you know, and and um, beforehand. So it was kind of like almost like being uh, like at a family reunion for uh, Monsters Anonymous or, you know, some of my old acting classes. So, like, I knew almost everybody that was a part of it. So it was really fun to get to hang out with everyone. And um, just to be a part of it, you know. There's nothing quite like being on a film set. It's you know, so... Now that both you and I have experienced it, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, it's like you're getting you're getting to make pretend. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's fun. And I love playing bad guys. I got to play a bad guy again. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, man. I'll keep oh, everybody... one other... Updated for um, if it gets picked, they do a first, a first kind of a first draft round of all the films, and then they'll pick eat the best film of each genre, and then do a different day. They do like four days of the festival where they pick all the best movies from each genre. So when that happens, it'll be open to the public, and I'll let everyone know um, if we get picked to to keep an eye out. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Thank you. Oh, one other quick thing, the same day of the Parker Syndrome premiere, because you know me, I can't do just one thing in a day. Um, <laughs> the, the Emerald Coast Film Group recently created a separate nonprofit group called Emerald Coast Filmmakers, and they put on three different panels on Saturday morning. So they, had, they hosted an acting panel where they had seven, anywhere between seven to ten local actors you know, talk about their experiences. Uh, people could ask questions. There was one for acting, one for making a short film, and then another for cinematography. Well, I got to moderate the acting one, and then I was just going to stick around for the short film one. But Steve walks up to me about five minutes before the panel, and he says, hey, just so you know, you can sit anywhere up there you want. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're on the panel. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Uh, but it was it was fun. Steve was on the panel. Uh, Kevin was on it. A few awesome. other local filmmakers were on it too. So I would love to. Have been I, I was for that. I was in good company. That's awesome. But if you go to like, the hey, if you go hey, to the Emerald Coast filmmaker page on Facebook, uh, we live stream them, so you can go back and actually watch them if you oh, want. Awesome. I didn't see that. I'm subscribed to it, but I didn't. I didn't see it pop up on my feed. No, they're they're definitely there. Awesome. Well, um, well, we're about 15 minutes in, so I guess it's time to actually start the show now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're here, so we might as well. And uh, just real quick for everybody that actually is wondering why we haven't done any live shows lately, 
I'm having a lot of technical issues, and I think this weekend I'm just going to have to just completely wipe OBS off my computer and reinstall it because I'm having a lot of problems. And uh, hopefully our live shows will be back up and running next week. So keep your fingers crossed if you like to watch us live. I'm, I'm working on it, and I apologize that we haven't had a live show in a few weeks. Well, part of that is me, too, because of the wacky work schedule. But as of this recording, there are 15 games left. Nice. Which is insane. Not long. Not too long at all. All right. But yeah, let's get into the news. Yes, let's do that. This first story comes to us from Nintendo Life. Uh, earlier this week, it was announced that two more classic Star Wars games are getting a limited run. Uh, let's see. A major surprise during the limited run E3 2019 presentation was when the physical video game specialist announced it was partnering with Lucasfilm to re-release classic Star Wars games. Uh, this began with the re-release of the original Star Wars game in June, and now the company will be following this up with Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back for NES and Game Boy, as well as Star Wars Shadows of the Empire on N64. You'll be able to order both games from the LRG website uh, this Friday, July 26th, which was this past Friday. Um, let's see, you can get The Empire Strikes Back priced at $84.99, and let's see, Shadows of the Empire Collector's Edition will be priced at $89.99 as well. And I actually may pick up the uh, Shadows of the Empire um, mm -hmm. copy because, dude, this looks awesome. Right? Man. I love that poster. Oh, the poster, the box, the, the purple game cartridge, the, the art cards. Like, it's just, dude, Limited Run is killing it right now. They are. No, it's, I mean, the stuff from both games look great, but... If I had to get one, it would definitely be Shadows of the Empire because that was a great, great game back in the day. Frustratingly hard sometimes, yeah. but you know, when you got an N64, you had to get Shadows of the Empire. It really does break my heart that Shadows of the Empire is no longer canon in the Star Wars timeline. I know. Because it was, I mean, I had the entire comic book run, I had the game. Um, it was just, it was that point in star wars where it was the kind of the mid 90s you know like uh we hadn't seen you know episode one was still kind of in the works and um you know, we were craving for content yeah we need we still had we had the extended universe books but shadows of the empire was like that thing that kind of just brought star wars back into the the public consciousness you know well, it deals with that that little time period, you know, it's right between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. You really get to see Boba Fett be Boba Fett, yeah. which you don't see in any of the Star Wars movies. Like this is the that you're right. This is the only time you really got to see Boba Fett like he had Han Solo. He was being hunted by all the other bounty hunters, like, you know, it's like He's and trying, he outsmarts them all. Yeah, he tr he's trying to, to get Han Solo and Carbonite to Jabba the Hutt. You had Princess Leia and Chewbacca teaming up as uh, undercover as bounty hunters. And, like, it's just, good God, what a great storyline. They need to put that back in canon. And Dash Rendar. Oh, I mean, you yeah. can't get too much better than that. He's 
You know, he he would be the brother to Han Solo. Yeah. Mm. No, I'd I'd love to pick up a copy of Shadows of the Empire. Yeah. Oh man, I have to. I think I'm going to do that when I get paid this week. That's not a bad idea. But also a segue into another classic game, also from NintendoLife.com. The PEGI rating suggests Doom 64 is making a comeback. This weekend, QuakeCon is celebrating Doom's 25th anniversary. God, that's crazy to think about. I know. Adding to the announcement of Doom 1, 2, and 3 for Switch, a rating for Doom 64 has now surfaced online. Although the rating is for PS4 and PC, the ratings for Doom and Doom 2 listed the same platforms, and both titles ended up coming to additional systems, including the Nintendo Switch. Considering Doom 64 started out life exclusively on the N64 in 1997, it would make a lot of sense for it to return to a Nintendo platform if it was re-released. I might actually pick this up because I played a lot of Doom 64 on Nintendo 64. Uh, I know it doesn't look that great and it probably plays even worse because I may, I don't know, I'm, I would love to review it because I did play it a lot back in the day and... um you know, I'd love to do a review of this. I think it would be a good thing for the show. No, I agree. And funny enough, I've never played a Doom game, but if this really? does come to the Switch, I'd love to try it out. I would, I would hope that they kind of give it a little polish, though. Because, you know, it. I remember it looking kind of rough back then, because it was even still... Like, even the original PC game was still a little rough looking. I'd love yeah. to see it with a little bit of polish put on it. Let's hope so. But no, I think this would be a, a fantastic game for you to review. Oh, yeah. I loved it back in the day. I loved Doom on the computer. I like I loved Doom on the 64. It was just, I loved that franchise. Yeah. Didn't make a great movie, but no. <laughs> the game seemed fun. I, although I will say that that first person part towards the end of the movie made it worth it for me. Oh, Yeah. You know it's a bad movie when even The Rock comes out and says, yeah, yeah that sucked. <laughs> I wonder if you ever thought about maybe they should remake it. Maybe. I, would love to I mean, see it, him and Carl it Urban actually me. remake that movie. That would be awesome. No, I, I would be okay with that. Now, off topic, did you ever play any of the Gears of War games? Yes, I, play, I actually played the first one. But so Dave Batista came out and said he would love to make a Gears of War movie with Terry Crews. Dude, that would be awesome. I know little to nothing about Gears of War, but if you put those two in a movie together, I would watch it. I think they would make they I think that would actually be pretty good. It had a pretty interesting storyline to it. I just it was one of those games I played and then by the time the second one came out, it, I'd kind of lost my interest for it. Yeah, it was just one of those franchises that I never got to play. Yeah. But those who have played it, you know, played through the whole series, love it. Yeah. But uh, but for our next story, this is all actually on Forbes.com. And I don't know if it, I'm pretty sure everybody listening to this show knows that uh, Nintendo's gotten into a little trouble in the last couple of weeks because of their, um, their Joy-Con um, thumbstick drift issues. Uh, they've actually been they're being targeted for a class action lawsuit right now. And uh, this actually on Forbes dropped the other day. Nintendo will fix Switch Joy-Con drift issues for free, out of warranty, and offer refunds. 
the issues with the Joy-Cons and Nintendo Switch have never really gone away since launch, but thanks to a recent Kotaku report resurfacing the issue, it became news again as collectively loads of Switch owners went, oh yeah, that's definitely still happening to me too. Uh, the problem is the control stick of the Joy-Con can drift without you touching it often screwing up gameplay, and it's something that Nintendo will fix, but will require you to send in your unit, pay shipping, and sometimes pay for the whole process And if, you, if your Switch is out of warranty. Uh, their first response to this issue was uh, rather lackluster, an expression of con contrition and pointing people to the help page, but it appears more is coming. Uh, let's see, an internal memo in Nintendo that details more drastic steps that will be taken has spawned... Um, a class action lawsuit and you will no longer have to provide proof of purchase for your switch or Joy-Con to get repaired. You will no longer need to provide warranty documentation to have it fixed for free. You will be offered a prepaid label so you don't have to pay for shipping. And if you have previously paid Nintendo to fix this problem, usually around $40, you may be eligible for a refund. Well, I think it's smart by them to take drastic action. Yeah. You know, it's, I personally have never had this issue, but I remember reading about it at some point, you know, a while back. It's something, I think it's ridiculous that if it's something that is clearly an issue on their end that you would have mm. to send in your Switch yeah. and pay for the shipping. Like, it should I, be something that they fix for free because it's their mess up. Yeah, I personally haven't had this problem on the actual Joy-Cons. I had this problem with... uh with my original pro controller I and mean, I just, I basically, I just went and bought a new pro controller cause it was on, I bought it on sale. I got a new brand new pro controller on sale at GameStop for like 17 bucks. And, um, that's lucky cause those things aren't cheap. Yeah, I know. Um, that's, that's why we were talking about a few weeks ago. I've gotten a lot of good deals with GameStop being a member of that, um, whatever their, you know, the pro rewards program rewards thing is I've gotten a lucky with a lot of stuff the last few months. And um, luckily, I haven't had this problem, and hopefully I won't. Um, but if I do, it's good to know that Nintendo will fix the problem for free. Yeah, it's absolutely what they should have done from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Especially if they knew this was a problem from the beginning. Yeah. 100% agree. Yeah. Our last story comes to us from, if, oh, there we go, some type of weird ad popped up. From express.co.uk, Nintendo Direct Switch fans treated to Shock Conference this week. Actually, I have this was actually, <laughs> say again. So this, uh, I put this in there yesterday, but the uh, the comp, the Nintendo Switch Direct actually happened today. Yeah, and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I haven't either. Let's see. The original story: Nintendo has announced plans to hold a surprise Direct conference for later in the week. The video-style presentation will take place on July 30th, which was today, and hosted by Super Smash Bros. Ultimate game director Masahiro Sakurai. Mm -hmm. uh, he gave fans a closer look at the Dragon Quest DLC fighter for the Nintendo Switch release. And let's see, the presentation runs for more than 20 minutes and focuses almost exclusively on the new Dragon Quest characters. And the... Oh, they will actually be released today. Yeah. That's awesome. And they now, fingers crossed that they announce a uh, release date for the Banjo-Kazooie pack soon. Oh, yeah. That'd be awesome. I mean, I think it's great that they're still adding DLC to this game because 
I don't know where you go with Smash Brothers from here because you've included literally everything and everyone from the franchise. Yeah, I think this should just sort of, uh, from now until the end of the Switch, I think they should just basically just do uh, like roster updates, <laughs> you know? And, and yeah, DLC. do like two, like four characters a year, like do one every quarter. Yeah, like that, that actually makes sense to me. Instead of putting out brand new games, just... You know, for five bucks, put out, you know, a new pack of characters. Yeah, with, I think you have to put a stage with the characters, too. So put, like, a character, a yeah. stage, maybe some new music to go along with it. That way it can really, because I don't know how long the Switch lifespan is going to be. But this needs to be the Smash Brothers game, which, I mean, in past in, in past incarnations of Nintendo, there's only been one game per console like melee was just for gamecube brawl was for the wii there was the wii u version so i i don't see them making another smash brothers game for the switch yeah but i definitely think you need to do not regular updates but like i said one a quarter i think would be good because so many people still play this game you know i went back and played it the other day it's gonna be popular for a while i mean smash brothers is sort of like uh Mario Kart. It's 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 evergreen. Yeah. Absolutely. But no, I'm it's cool that they're adding new characters and I, I can't wait for I can't wait to see how many people will say, Oh, Banjo kazooies my character now. Yeah. Like so many people are gonna be using Banjo kazooie when they come out because it's been it's been in such high demand for so long. Ever since really I think Melee, they've been one of the most requested characters for Smash Brothers. Yeah. But um, let's go ahead and move into this month in video game history, shall we? Let's do it. In July of 1984, Data East releases Technos Japan's Karate Champ, laying the foundations for the one-on-one fighting game genre. Did you ever play Karate Champ in the arcades? I did not. Um, I know of this game. It looks like a lot of fun. But no, I, my, my arcade playing experience was very limited growing up. So this was one that I didn't get to play, unfortunately. But it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, I played this in the arcade. I, th- I think I did play this on... Um, I think I actually have this <laughs> for the NES. But the NES port, I remember being absolutely awful like it is up there with one of the worst games for the nes so i don't recommend that at all Ugh, Ugh. that's unfortunate <laughs> on july 20th of 1984 namco releases action role-playing game tower of druaga i remember we talked about this not too long ago i love the little comic strip oh yeah <laughs> that's awesome it looks now i do cool. remember us talking about this uh last year yeah uh, let's I mean, see. It seems like it'd be a fun game. Yeah. Uh, let's jump to 1987, July 1st. Irem releases scrolling shooter R-Type. I love the R-Type games. Did you ever play R-Type back in the day? I did not. It looks fun, though. It's one of the best shooters um, that you can get. Like you can, They're a dime a dozen for the SNES, so I would very much recommend getting R-Type for the SNES. You know, now that you mentioned SNES, I may have mentioned this game show way back in previous episodes, but 
Nickelodeon used to have this game show called Nick Arcade. I remember that. I want to say this was a fairly regular occurrence. Like you could play various games and you'd have like 30 seconds to hit a certain score or something. Yeah. And I want to say our type was one of those. Yeah. Cause this game literally was released on pretty much everywhere. You could play a video game. This thing had ports on uh, the PC engine, which is also the turbo graphic 16. Uh, it was very prominent on there. Um, it's on the Xbox live arcade. Uh, it's actually, they have it on the Nintendo's virtual console, uh, 3DS, the Wii U, um, the Master System had it, the SNES had it, uh, let's see, you can get it now on, uh, Steam, oh yeah, uh, Eye Games returned in 2018 and reissued an updated digital-only release of R-Type Dimensions, now on Steam, PlayStation 4, and Nintendo Switch. I'll have to check this out. Yes, you do. It looks fun. Type. Oh, hush, looks like buddy. a lot of fun. <laughs> Stupid dog next door yelling. In July of 1987, Technos Japan releases Double Dragon to arcades, distributed internationally by Taito. Ah, Double Dragon, one of my favorite NES games. Even though it doesn't really hold up all that well, this was one of those games that I had to have when I was a kid. Well, it, this is iconic classic Nintendo oh, here. Yeah, and the music. You know, if oh. you if you list off five titles for Nintendo, Double Dragon by yeah. chance is is one of those five. Oh yeah, you. I, this is one of those games that you either brought with you or your friend had when you went over for uh, sleepovers because you would just yeah. spend all night playing two player Double Dragon. No, absolutely. Uh, also on July fifth, nineteen eighty seven. The Leisure Suit Larry and the Land of the Lounge Lizards adventure was released by Sierra Entertainment. Man, I remember this game was just scandalous back in the day. They should bring Leisure Suit Larry back they and should. have him do a team up with Conker from Conker's Bad Fur Day. <laughs> that would be awesome. Day one purchase. Uh, Absolute day one purchase. Now, I, I remember hearing about this game back in the day and how you know scandalous it was and everything. Never played it. I will be completely honest. I, I never played it, but it's it's uh it's infamous. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will say that. Well, you can actually go pick up Leisure Suit Larry Reloaded, which was produced by uh, Infusion Interactive and published by Replay Games. Uh, it was a, a modern point-and-click remake of the original game with updated HD graphics, fully vocalized audio, and various enhancements. Uh, to the puzzles and new characters. The game was developed for Microsoft Windows, Mac OS X, Mac OS X, OS X, iOS, Android, and Linux, and was released on June 27, 2013. We should do a Nerd Cave Retro After Dark. Yes. And review one of these games. <laughs> I'm going to look and see if it's on Steam, and I will do that. If that happens, I'm going to wear a silk robe and smoke a cigar the entire oh, yeah. episode. I have to get me a, um, like a smoking jacket. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you'd like to see or hear Nerd Cave Retro after dark, write us at nerdcaveretro at gmail.com. Oh, I've got the perfect song for it, too. Do you know the song Use Me by Bill Withers? Yeah. <laughs> that has to be the theme song for it. <laughs> we could do that. We could do Easy by the Commodores. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> On July 1st, 
on July 7th of 1987, Konami releases Metal Gear for the MSX2 home computer platform in Japan and Europe. Uh, when was it released on the NES? Let's see. Um, I really need to play one of these games. I would love to play the original version of this game because they did change it a lot for the NES port. And um, it was released in North America in June of 1988 for the yeah. NES. I was never a fan of the NES game. I think that's probably, I've said that, I've said this before. I think this game for the NES is probably why I hate stealth genre games now. Possibly. Maybe. Um, let's see, what's up next? We got 1988, July 20th to be exact. Capcom releases Bionic Commando for the NES Famicom based on the 1987 arcade game in the same title. Um, I played Bionic Commando a little bit back in the day. Um, I actually p almost picked up a copy of this a few weeks ago, um, but I ended up getting um, the Pod Racer game instead. Um, but I'm always on the lookout for a copy of Bionic Commando because, um, like, like I've said before, I have no problem with Capcom games from back in the day. Yeah, I'm actually reading about this. I don't think I've heard of this game before. It's kind of a weird game because there's no jumping ability. It is, it's, a, it's a platformer, but you don't have um, any kind of jumping ability. It's all about you have a bionic arm that um, mm -hmm. extends almost like a Inspector Gadget style to uh, swing you up to different platforms. That actually sounds interesting. I have to look up some gameplay of it. Yeah, it's a pretty good game. I liked it back in the day. I hope it holds up. Jumping to 1989, on July 11th, Capcom releases Mega Man 2 in more countries. Yes, one of the best uh, platforming games ever made. Your first review on the Nerd Cave Retro was, Show. And I had just defeated it for the first time in my life <laughs> when we did that review. Oh, that's awesome. Now, it's, it's funny thinking back from the original version of the show whenever you and I would both do a review yeah. in the same episode because you reviewed Mega Man 2 and I reviewed Link to the Past. Yeah. Because I remember when you approached me with the idea of doing this, I said the first game I review has to be Link to the Past. Well, that was we were going... Uh, our whole idea for the show was we were only going to do like six episodes per s season. <laughs> mm -hmm. which was a wild idea but then we got such a good response from the show we were like um maybe we need to do this every week and uh so we split it to where we leapfrog doing our, our reviews mm -hmm. well i think it's that in a combination of we both just have so much fun doing it that oh, yeah you know we wouldn't want it to stop for a couple of months and then go back and do four to six episodes yeah and then stop again uh, also on July 27th of 1989, Nintendo releases Mother in Japan, the first of a trilogy of role-playing games produced by celebrity writer Shigesato Etoi, um, which you, you've talked about a lot on this show. Mother is actually, um, what's it called here? Earthbound. <laughs> Earthbound. God, could, it wouldn't escape my mouth. So the original, so Earthbound as it's known in the U.S. is actually Mother 2. Uh, Mother 1 was never released in the States until 
uh, let's see, June 2015, when it was released on the Wii U Virtual Console under the name Earthbound Beginnings. So why do you think Which I, um, I, Nintendo hasn't released it on the Switch? Like, do a, a complete mother-slash-Earthbound collection? That's a very good question, because there's been demand for it for a long time, because there's even a Mother 3 mm-hmm. that has never been released in the United States. Why it hasn't been, I have no idea. I've watched some gameplay of it, and it, it looks and seems like it plays very similar to the original Earthbound for the Super Nintendo. I'm hoping that at some random point, Nintendo's just going to drop the Mother Trilogy. Yeah. And it's all going to be available on the Switch. But I, I don't think that's going to happen until Nintendo starts releasing Super Nintendo games on their online store. Yeah, hopefully that's sooner than later. But I do think that if they don't do that, that Earthbound will be one of the first games that's released for it. Yeah. I think it'll be that. You got to throw in Link to the Past, Mario World. I could see maybe a Super Metroid would be one of the first, but... Yeah, I think those would be That goes back to the whole... Oh, go ahead. I I think those would probably be your first four released. I think they'd probably throw in F-Zero in that first batch of SNES games that they would release. Yeah. But I I think, you know, that delves into the whole discussion of how often they should release games, which is a whole separate issue that we've talked about quite a bit. Jumping ahead to the 90s, in 1992, on July 29th, Echo the Dolphin is released, the first in the series. This is actually a game that I remember seeing in stores when I was a kid, and I never played it, but I would be interested to just because I have no idea like what it's about. I mean, I've got the Wikipedia page right in front of me, but as yeah. far as actually playing it, I have no idea how it plays, what it's about, or anything. I remember the advertisements for it and then the uh, the TV spots for it, but I just never... I was like, who, who wants to play a dolphin? <laughs> like That just doesn't seem interesting at all. So this will be one that if we review it, I'm going to have to take the hit on. But it was a popular game, though. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. Maybe I uh, I'll, I'll, it too harshly. I'll give it a, sh- I'll give it a try at some point. Is it on the um, the SNES Mini? Uh, no. I think this was um, a Sega exclusive. Was Echo the Dolphin? Wasn't it? Yeah, it was a. It was a. Yeah. This, let me. I don't. I think it is. Let me look up the. Uh, Genesis, if I can spell it correctly, mini game list. I'm almost positive I saw it on there. Because if it is, I'll definitely give it a shot. Man, I can't wait for this thing to come out. (laughs) It's like not too much, not too much longer. It's like being a kid waiting on Christmas. Um, Yes, it is on there. Echo the Dolphin. Sweet. Man, there are so many games on here. I cannot wait to play this thing. No, I'll definitely give that a shot. I mean, there's several games that I want to play on this that that I could get into. Oh, yeah. Um, but we're coming up to the end of uh, our list here. Let's see. Let's go to 1994. In July of 1994, LucasArts releases TIE Fighter, and I had this for the PC back in the day. I loved these games, TIE Fighter and Rogue Squadron. Great, great games. This is one of those games that I remember going over to my uncle's house after school and I would watch him for, you know, hours play these games. 
Yeah, and, and this was definitely one of them. If you look at the screenshots, I mean, the, the graphics for these games are really impressive. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I, I You said these, uh, most of these are on Steam, right? Yeah, I think they are on Steam right now. Okay. I'll add it to the, the, the long, long list. Yeah, I think most of the LucasArts catalog is on Steam. Also, on July 5th of 1994, Capcom releases Darkstalkers. Darkstalkers. I remember this. See, it was available for Arcade, Dreamcast, PlayStations 1 through 3, the PSP, Sega Saturn, and the Xbox 360. Wow, I had an anime series, an animated series, comic books, manga books. Wow. This thing must have been popular. Yeah, that's impressive. Wow. 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 Uh, let's see here. One more left. Um, July 15th of 1994, Acclaim Entertainment and Mirage releases the fighting game Rise of the Robots. Arguably one of the worst fighting games, not only on the Super Nintendo, but of all time, I think. <laughs> let's see. Rise of the Robots. Did you ever play this game? Mm-mm. Oh, Dude, that awful. cover art is awesome. The cover art looks great. The game is a hot pile of garbage. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. Because I uh, was so looking forward to this game. I, I, all the advertisements, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And I, got, I, I actually rented it. G- thank God I didn't buy it. I rented it. And I was like, man, that was a weekend wasted. <laughs> <laughs> that's unfortunate i mean it's that is that does happen though you have like this game has fantastic cover art and you can hide a bad game behind that and if you make it look really good in advertisements yeah you you can you can get people to buy stuff we should review it though we should do a do like find a copy of it and one 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 weekend when we're actually in the same town we should get together and play it and do a dual review I'll take the book and great. buy a copy of it so we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll do man. That would be show. great. But I, if you get us back up to that $50 level on Patreon, I'll, I'll use some of that money to go buy a copy of Rise of the Robots. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it. Uh, but let's go ahead and move into our review for tonight. What do you say? Yeah. Captain Skyhawk is a scrolling shooter video game developed by Rare and published by the Milton Bradley Company. The game was released in North America in June of 1990 and in Europe on May 24, 1994 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was also released for the PlayChoice 10 arcade machine and it featured music by composer David Wise. And if you don't know that name, you have definitely heard his music. Um, if you look at the list of the, the music this guy's done, I mean, for just for the NES alone, I mean, he did Wizards and Warriors, RC Pro-Am, The Marble Madness, which we talked a lot about, that awesome music. Um, let's see, he did uh, Snake, Rattle, and Roll, 
Um, all, most of the WrestleMania games, Battletoads, and then you move into the Super Nintendo. He did um, the Donkey Kong Country games, Star Fox. Um, man, just the list goes on and on for the music that he made. I mean, this guy basically made the soundtrack of our youth. <laughs> and the music for this game is just as good. Um, see, the, the, and this game is, I didn't really know what to expect when I bought this game. I actually bought this game over um, that Easter weekend. I don't know if you remember, Derek, when I went to our local Play and Talk. And they had an Easter sale going on where it was 10 games for 10 bucks, And they had just a ton of just NES and Super Nintendo games sitting there. So I just grabbed up a handful of NES games um, for, you know, 10 games for 10 bucks. So basically a dollar a piece. I got this game for a buck o over Easter. And this was one of the games that was in the pile that I got. Not knowing what to expect. I, and honestly, I didn't remember this game at all. Like, I was like, yeah, this kind of looks interesting. And even, just to mention the cover art for a minute, even the cover art isn't necessarily engaging. Like, it sort of has that, I don't know, Atari 2600 sort of vibe to it, but I don't know, it's just, I, what do you think about the cover art? Does it, intri like, intrigue you at all? I think the Captain Skyhawk logo is pretty cool, but as far as the actual art, it's okay. I mean, yeah. it would be one of those things that I'd briefly look at it and then probably put it back on the shelf. Yeah, it's okay. Like, the logo's okay. It just it doesn't really capture your imagination or anything like that. It's just kind of blah. But the no, game itself? It man, the game itself is so much better than the cover art. Uh, you take on the role of a fighter pilot working to repel an alien invasion. Aliens have invaded Earth and have built four land bases. These bases are designed to drain Earth's energy and feed it to their mother space station. If the space station is allowed to obtain enough energy, it will destroy the Earth with a massive laser blast, Death Star style. Player must destroy the enemy bases, then go after the space station itself. Um, so basically, like, the look of the game itself is... Uh, there's different stages to the game. Like you start out, it's got this like sort of overhead isometric, like 3D look to it. Um, the terrain itself is sort of um, almost polygonal. Like if if that makes any sense, sort of like uh, has a kind of a Star Fox look to it. Um, that's exactly what I was thinking when I watched the gameplay of it. Yeah, is it, it very, the the ship reminded me a lot of the R wing from Star Fox. Yeah, and that's really the vibe I got from this game playing it when I first popped it in. Was this feels like I'm playing Star Fox on the NES? And of course, you go through that first stage, and it took me a little while to kind of figure it out. And I actually, I I unplugged my regular controller and used the NES Advantage in this game, and that made it so much better, playing with the NES Advantage. And I learned as well, too, you don't have to kill or try and kill every enemy on the game. A lot of, the, of it is avoiding the enemies and the terrain itself. Like, there are different paths through the terrain. You have to, you know, not crash into the mountains and things like that, just so you can get to the end of the stage, which you kind of have, you know, your boss fights, which aren't necessarily that hard. But once you get through those stages, then you go to um, 
a sort of a rear view level where you're a dog fighting level, which, um, you know, Top Gun sort of when you play Top Gun by Konami, it's you're inside the cockpit when you're in the dog fight. But with this game, it's more um, it's from behind. It's more like um, uh, crap. What's the name of that arcade game? Um, shit, I can't think of the name of it. Right? It was just in my head a little while ago. Um, you know what game I'm talking about? It was in Terminator Two. Um, oh crap! Uh, what was the name of that game? I love that game, and for some reason, I'm I'm brain farting right now. Let's see. Uh, no, not the Terminator 2 arcade game. Uh, let's see. Afterburner. Jeez, it just popped in my head. Afterburner <laughs> is what it reminded me of. Um, and it's very fast paced. Like, not like, like Top Gun feels sluggish compared to, you know, the dog fighting in this game. And then once you get through that level, then you dock with the space station. Um, and in the space station, once you dock, um, you have you can actually buy different upgrades. And let me look up the upgrades here. You have uh, four different types of weapons. You have cannon, um, Phoenix air intercept missiles, Maverick air to ground missiles, and Hawk bombs. Um, the cannon is the only weapon with an unlimited supply. The rest of the weapons must be purchased between missions after docking with the space station. Uh, see, the purchases are made with credits. Obtained through the levels by destroying all aliens that are in a group. Uh, purchasing additional cannons allow the player to fire much more rapidly, which it doesn't really matter if you have the NES advantage because you can turn on turbo <laughs> anyway. Um, but those are kind of your, your three main stages of the game. And then um, you have, let's see, there's, uh, there's like eight or nine total missions in the game broken up um there's like four missions but they're each broken up into like two or three sections so you end up with like eight or nine different um sections to go through in the game and each one has you doing a different objective like one would be um you have to you know fight the a boss at the end the other one is to destroy the underground bunkers with um with bombs and things of that nature so, the only th thing I, I would say bad about the game is there's not a whole lot of differentiation between the, the different stages. They kind of use the same uh, structure. They just change the color. And it does seem to be, like, I don't know, they could have done a little more than just, like, changing the color of things to give it a different look. But other than that, this game is excellent. It's very fast-paced. Um, I think, you know, if you run through the entire game, it only, it'll only take you about 30 minutes. But it does take a little while to kind of get used to it. Um, but <clears throat> this is leap years beyond, like, this is the game that Top Gun should have been. And I feel like this game is good enough that I feel bad that it was overlooked so hard because I don't remember anybody that had this game back in the day. And that the fact that it was developed by Rare, like you can tell because it is such a well-polished game 
for the NES, and I highly recommend it um, to be in your NES collection. Yeah, kind of touching on that, when you mentioned this was going to be the game you were reviewing, I'd honestly never heard it, and you used that same phrase, this is what Top Gun should have been. So I looked up some gameplay of it on YouTube, and it, it looks like a lot of fun. You know, I can see where the the repetition could come in, but even to an extent from what I remember from the first Star Fox game, you know, a lot of it had the, when you were on the planets, you know, a lot of it had the same look, except like everything on Fortuna was blue and green. Everything on Titana was was red. Yeah, and that's so it was exactly like they kind of changed the color is. a little bit. But I, I think that kind of shows the, you know, the limitation of those types of games at times. Yeah, and I think that's probably why, because you know the NES was very limited. But I think this game actually pushes the limits of what the Nintendo could do, and I didn't really suffer any kind of like slowdown or <clears throat> any kind of like flicker. Anything like that that would kind of take you out of the game because you know the Nintendo did suffer with that a lot with a lot of other games, especially games like Double Dragon or you know kind of <clears throat> side-scrolling beat 'em ups where you would have a lot of enemies on the screen at the same time. You know the NES would suffer a lot of slowdown. I didn't really experience that with the with this game at all. So you know, Rare really did push the NES to its limit with this game and I I honestly think that maybe the cover art had a lot to do with why this game didn't really take off because I think if it had a better cover like more engaging cover art because that was really the t what sold games back in the day you know we didn't have the internet we didn't have um you know game websites to go to or you know, Metacritic, we didn't have any of that stuff. All we had was Nintendo Power and, you know, Electronic Gaming Monthly and things like that. And when you, most of the time, my purchases were done by the box art. Like if the box art looked cool and they had some cool screenshots, I more than likely would pick up a game. And I'll be honest, if I saw this game sitting on the shelf when I was a kid, I probably would have just passed it right up. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And that was something, too, that I noticed when I was watching the footage on YouTube is that I thought this is actually a really good looking game for the Nintendo. Yeah, you know, it, it did come out towards the end of its run. So around that time, I felt like a lot of games were pushing the graphical limits of it because, you know, the the release of the Super Nintendo was pretty imminent at yeah. that time. So and plus, too, when it, it came it, out, it looked, like, EU... it looked like a good game to me. Yeah, because this came out right before... Well, what year did the SNES come out? That came out in December. 91. Yeah, 91. So this came out in 90 and <clears throat> in North America, but it didn't come out in the EU until 1994, four years later, you know, three years into the life of the Super Nintendo. So that probably had a lot to do with it, too, coming out in the EU, is you're putting it out late in the game for the NES. Yeah. really late in the game. Well, and that's a problem with most consoles is that when people know that another console is coming, they quit buying games for their old one. Yeah. You know, I know the N64 had that problem. You know, it's 
I still remember when Conker's Bad Fur Day came out. I think one of the big reasons why they got away with the adult content is because it was the last big game for the system, and Nintendo was kind of full on for for GameCube, and we're like, yeah, you just kind of do whatever you want. Yeah. But it it looks like a, a fun game, a fun game to play. I mean, it's great. I had a lot of fun playing this game. It was a surprise. Like when you say hidden gem for for the NES, this game is literally a hidden gem for the NES because I didn't even remember this game when I bought it. Like I, this just completely was not on my radar when I was a kid. This game at all, and it, I would have enjoyed this immensely as a kid because I wanted Top Gun to be a better game. <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's okay, but it's not great. It's not even really that good. This game is great, and it's what Top Gun should have been. And I really do think it suffered <clears throat> because of maybe the box art. And like you said, it was late in the life of the NES. So those kind of things were going against it. But at the same time, you know, this game deserved a little better. Yeah. But um, but on a scale of one to ten, I give it an eight and a half. I definitely think it should be part of your collection, <clears throat> especially if you like, you know, like um, shooters for the NES, which there weren't a ton. You know, this is one of those overhead scrolling shooters along the vein of uh, you know some of the stuff we've talked about on the the show here before. You know, especially like uh, the 1942 games and things like that. But it does have that little something different about it that kind of sets it apart. So if you come across it, you know, somewhere, definitely pick it up and put it in your collection. It's definitely one of those games you'll you'll play over and over again because there's not much bad to say about it. That's awesome. And that's that kind of goes into one of my favorite things about this entire podcast is because... I would have never heard of Captain Skyhawk if we weren't doing this review. Oh, me too. I mean, it, if I had not gone to play and talk that day, I would have never picked it up. And even as I go to play and talk and look through the games, if I saw this on the shelf, I would just pass it right up, you know? Yeah. But no, that's awesome. I'm glad you were able to find a, a hidden gem. Yeah, it, I... Glad I picked it up. This is one of the best NES purchases I've ever made because it was only a buck. Like, I got a lot of enjoyment out of this game for a dollar. Love it. But um, but I think that's going to bring us to the end of the show. Is there anything that you want to uh, throw out there before we leave tonight? I did want to give a shout-out to Nerd Cave Retro fan Brandon Rutledge. Uh, he and I actually went to a WWE event here in town uh, last Sunday. Uh, had a lot of fun. Um, the, the cool thing was is that because we did a WWE night at work, so they supplied us with a limited number of tickets to their show that was here in town. And I had an extra one and asked if Brandon wanted to go, and he said, yeah, and we had a lot of fun. Yeah, if I lived closer, I definitely would have went with you guys because that looks like a blast. As cringy, as cringeworthy as it can be watch to watch on TV, if I could talk tonight, <laughs> as cringeworthy as it can be to watch on TV as far as the current era goes sometimes, 
the the live shows are still so fun. And I, I even had some of my coworkers who had never been to a WWE show before, and they said that it was great. I haven't been to a WWE show since like 1991, I think, 92, somewhere around there. That's wild. Yeah, I actually saw Hulk Hogan wrestle live, and that was great. And I haven't been back since. It's funny you mentioned that because that's the segue into, you know, whenever we're able to do the wrestling debate, the first time I saw Hogan wrestle was when he was Hollywood Hogan. Really? As part of the NWO <laughs> in WCW. Because I, I remember, you know, my whole family would go to those shows when they would come around here in like 98, 99. We would go every year. Yeah. And we would pack out an entire row. And it was it was so much fun. I, I wish I was the age that I was now. If wrestling was like it it was back then. Oh yeah. Oh, it would be so fun. We used to get so many wrestling shows at uh the the Gulf Coast Coliseum. I mean, they were all the time. Like I used to go see Mid South Wrestling there. They always had um uh NWA there, WWE. Well it was WWF back then. I mean, it was all the time was wrestling shows back then, and we don't get them here anymore. Like I don't even remember the last time there was a uh big wrestling show like that at the local Coliseum. Yeah, they don't come around as often as as they used to. I think there was a, a period where they didn't come around here for a couple of years, and now it's gotten back to they'll come back yeah. you know, once a year, not for a, a TV taping, but just for a, a house show. Hmm. But there was a pretty good crowd. All the floor seats were pretty much full, and... You know, a good portion of the the mid level, which was where we were sitting, a good majority of those were filled too. Well, next time so I was come very back, surprised. Let me know because um, I'll snap snatch up a ticket and come over and and go to it with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, other than that, you know, we're a little over a month away from the return of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. So yes. you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. The show will be returning on September fifth, which is on a Thursday. And I'm toying with the idea. This isn't confirmed. But I might do my first show back as a live show. Awesome. I've got there's a there's a local production group here called Vivid Bridge Studios. And they've said that they want to do my show, but then I'm thinking it'd be kind of cool to come back doing a live show. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, just to make it kind of a bigger deal. I'll agree with that. <clears throat> yeah. So other than that, you know, just doing stuff with the Parker syndrome, like I mentioned at the top of the show. Fantastic. And um, you can follow me uh, at jfunktastic on Twitter um, <clears throat> and also on Facebook too. I've been doing stand-up comedy on Monday nights at our local nerd bar, the Wayward Kraken, and um, it's getting bigger and bigger every week, the local comedy scene. And we got a lot of comics coming in from like the Mobile and Pensacola area, um, getting some um, touring comics coming through. So if you're in the, the local Biloxi area, Come see me and Mr. Wallace Phelps doing comedy every Monday night at 7.30 at the Wayward Kraken in downtown Biloxi. And it is a good time to be had. And that's every Monday? Every Monday. Every Monday, 7.30 p.m. I might have to do that in a couple of weeks. Because I the this upcoming Monday I have to work, but I have the following one off. You should. You're more than welcome to stay over 
at at the uh, apartment here, and we can play some retro games while you're here. Because <laughs> I I have um I've heard good things about the Wayward Kraken from you and from other people you know who live here that have visited. They say it's a it's a great place. It is a fantastic nerd bar, and I love LB who runs the joint, and everybody that works up there, like Rhonda and Cannon Blue, everybody that works there is awesome. It's such a cool place. We should really try and do maybe in the fall once you know my schedule gets a little more normal. We should do a show from the Wayward Kraken. Yes, I've talked to LB about that, and he said that is definitely doable. All we got to do is just let him know when, and he will accommodate us to do a live Nerd Cave retro show from the Wayward Kraken. That would be great. So do an on location live show. I'd love it. Yes, that'd be awesome. We can stream it maybe to Facebook and Twitch maybe. Um, if you can't make yeah. it live, but if it is live, you know, we'll, we'll let you know when it's going to be. And, um, uh, maybe we'll do a little something, uh, maybe have, uh, I don't know, maybe invite some people who are selling retro games and retro game memorabilia, maybe do a little swap meet type of thing that day. Yeah. I think that'd be great to do too. Making an all day affair. No, I think that's a great idea. Mm, get, we, we need to get on that. We do. But um, but I'm ready to go ahead and walk out the door. How about you? Yes, sir. Let's do it. If you would like to email us, so you can email us at nerdcaveretro at gmail.com. Don't forget us to get us those, uh, whether you, what do you think's better, 80s wrestling or the Attitude Era, that, that show's going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, you can go to nerdcaveretro.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at NerdCaveRetro, at JFunktastic, and at Derek underscore Diamond. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash NerdCaveRetro. And if you get us back up to the $50 level on Patreon, which you can find at Patreon.com slash NerdCaveRetro, get us back up to that $50 level and we will do our um, extra episodes for you guys again, which we enjoy doing, so help us do that. And if you can't give us a buck a month, go leave us a review wherever you get the show from. And we are on Spotify and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. So Derek, please tell them what it's all about. May the way of the hero lead to the Triforce. Yes. Monkey! <laughs> <laughs>